Good morning, church. Thank you for joining us this morning as we come together and worship God through song, worship him through studying his word. Can you please stand with me as we come together and sing? sing and share your word today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want again to welcome you all to our service today. Pastor Cliff is at home. We managed to keep him there. Lisa was able to do so. Uh, he is out of the hospital, home and improving. Still not feeling the best, but improving. I suspect he'll be back with us one day, one way or the other next week, but uh, do keep him in your prayers as uh, he recuperates and rests and develops uh, 
a stronger physical body to be able to uh, lead us in our worship time. We have a little box down here again, and uh, we're again for Pastor Appreciation Month. We're collecting some money that we can use to send Lisa on a trip to the ark, and Cliff can accompany her. <laughs> and I'm suspecting that it's not going to happen in November. Not likely to happen in December. Maybe January, February, but somewhere in there, she's going to be able to get him to take her over there. And so that's what the box is for. It'll be out and around uh, for a while yet, but we won't talk about it again during the service. Um, also wanted to let you know something about uh, what's happening. You see a lot of T-shirts people wearing. I understand I was gone on Sunday, and I don't know if we talked about it, but apparently you're supposed to be wearing your favorite church T-shirt. And so uh, I'm not. Cedar Hills Camp is a children's camp in the state of Mississippi that the Baptist uh, office there runs. And our Carpenters for Christ group is down there working this week, and so that's the shirt that I'm wearing. A number of you were wearing the shirts from the mission trip we took to Lac de Flambeau a couple years ago, several years back. We went two years <laughs> in a row, and I'm glad to see those again. Uh, we have a guest speaker with us today, Brad Lovin, sitting over here. He's kind of hide off to the side there. Uh, he's going to come after the last song and, and lead us in our time of praise and worship as we uh, share the scripture. He is a director of missions through IBSA, and disaster relief is one of the things that he is uh, lead sharing leadership over. Glenn is here today with the refrigerator truck parked outside. When we say amen, he's going to be running out the door, firing up the truck, and heading to Raymond. They're going to have a few dis food distribution mm -hmm. over there today, so be in prayer for that, that they might be able to uh, touch someone's life for Jesus Christ. Let's continue to praise and worship together and uh, ask that you stand up again as uh, Adam comes to lead us in our songs. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness, whose love is mighty and so much stronger, the King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder. The King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me. our chaos back into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace, this is unfailing love, that you would take my 
Times of waiting, times of need. 
when I know lost, when I am It is so good to be with you. You don't know this, but I already know you very well because I know Glenn and Sharon Cardi, and I know who they are in their heart, and so I know that that doesn't come out of a, a church that doesn't also have similar passions. And I also wanted to start this morning by thanking you because some of you have prayed for me. I'm number one on day one here about praying for neighbors. I just want to share with you how God has responded to your prayers because you don't often get to hear about things that you necessarily pray for. But on Wednesday, we had 81 people at our house carving pumpkins. Some of them were from our church and most of them were from our community. Seven ethnicities represented, multiple religions. Some people, um, many of our neighbors do not know a single authentic Christian. And so your prayers are being responded to in unique ways. You know, we, we try to be faithful in living out obedience in our neighborhood, but it cannot be done alone. It has to be done in prayer. And so if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, 
We've got a lot to cover this morning, and I want to get Glenn and Sharon out the door on time, so I want to uh, move through this pretty uh, well. But I also want to give attention to what we're going to talk about, because what we've just sung about the Lord is my salvation completely has extreme relevance for, the, for this part of, of the story of the gospel. Uh, real quick, I want to give you a synopsis of who I am. I am the missions director. Uh, number one, I'm a father, though, and a husband. I've got four kids, ages 12 to 4, so I have a very busy household. Uh, I also, before I came here, I work with Samaritan's Purse, and I see a lot of you doing shoe boxes. I've, I've been on a handful of those distributions overseas. Uh, I used to be the director of international security for that organization, so I went to about 48 countries in three and a half years with them. So for a year of that time, me and my family lived in Uganda, and so we just had a lot of good opportunity. Before that, I was in the Army for 10 years on active duty because I felt like God had called me to reach young men at that time who would be future leaders in our country. And so that's kind of just who I am. This morning, though, I want us to look at this this. Um, this passage, and I want to talk about what it means to be an, an intentional witness. Intentional. Uh, we all know what those words mean, both a witness and intentional, but there's something special about us in our faith because we are called to be an intentional witness. And so this morning, let me pray for us as we begin, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at the gospel, Father, as we look at what your son Jesus did, in his ministry, Father, that it would compel us to consider how we might apply it to our lives. Father, not because we want to impress you or we want to be great, Father, but because we want to be obedient to you, Father. You call us to obedience, regardless of how small the task may appear, regardless of how difficult it may appear, Father, you've called us into obedience. So I pray that we would ask ourselves, how we can be obedient to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The main idea this morning that I want us to, to look at is this, that following Jesus is going to compel us to be intentionally testifying every day. Following Jesus compels us to be intentionally testifying every day. As we look at the passage here in the first verse, first six verses, we see the context for the situation. It says, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing his disciples were, he left Judea and went to Gal again to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. So this gives us the context for kind of where we start this passage at. The, the Samaritans, as you probably know, or you, you may not know, were considered less than Gentile by many of the Jews. They worshipped on Mount Gerizim in, at Shiloh, which is where the Jewish religious center was before they moved it to Jerusalem. But there was this constant tension between the Samaritans and the Jews because they were not fully Jewish in their different religious traditions, the Samaritans did not interact a lot with the Jews. Had Jesus been a good Jew, he would have bypassed the region of Samaria altogether. The, the problem, though, is, is 
the, the current worldview did not define Jesus' goodness. You see, the goodness of Jesus is not dependent on what he does, but rather who he is. God's goodness does not depend on what he does. It is who he is. And because he is good, he does good things. Likewise, we inversely, right before we know Jesus, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is our nature. <clears throat> and so Jesus is not going to be governed by the worldview. We can see this articulated best in the rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. Now, he calls him good teacher because you remember Jesus' response is, is, no one's good but God, right? Affirming that God's, Jesus is good not because of what he does but by who he is. And because of who he is, he does good. So Jesus came to Samaria, specifically to Sakar, in order to have a conversation that would change how Samaritans would see life. Jesus wasn't wandering along and he just happened to stumble upon a well and said, hey, this will be a good place in the middle of the sun to sit down at noon and take a break while I send my disciples in to get food. He was intentional. He was intentional. He had a plan. You know, Luke 19.10 writes that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It wasn't like he was just showing up. He had a plan. We read on in, in verses 7 through 10, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. Of course, Jews did not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. The Samaritan woman, she comes out to draw water at noon. Now this is not a typical time that women come out to draw water. In many places in the world today, probably about 2 billion people are still serviced by water by coming out to draw it somewhere and taking it back and, and purifying it through boiling or other methods. I remember the first time that I saw this was in northern Uganda. 600,000 South Sudanese refugees had streamed across the border because of conflict. And I was in the midst of a refugee camp where people were just trying to piece their lives together. And about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you could see the women and the girls. They were snaking. All these, all these people were gathering. They were moving their way to wells that had been drilled where they could gather water. You see, they didn't go in the middle of the day because you might expect it's hot. And just like you don't like to be out in the heat, they didn't like to be out in the heat. It was also just a time to socialize, where you would be around other people. So this leads us to the question, why is this Samaritan woman coming out at noon? I think it was because either she didn't want to come into contact with the people who would normally gather water because of who she was, or she wasn't available during that time because she was doing other things, or both. But in any case, she comes out at noon which was out of the ordinary. Out of the ordinary. The Samaritan woman knew it was not culturally appropriate for Jesus to speak to her because she's both a Samaritan and a woman. So we look at this passage and we could, we could very quickly jump to a conclusion and say, why wouldn't he talk to you? He's Jesus. 
She doesn't have the context that we have. She doesn't have the, the fullness of the Bible. She's asking a very legitimate question. Why are you doing this? Why are you even speaking to me? I know that I, I am, you think that I'm less than you. It's culturally inappropriate for women to do that. That's why she's perplexed and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from a Samaritan woman? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. The woman asks a, a fair question. Why would a Jewish man break all cultural norms of the established cultural and religious worldview to talk to me? Jesus' actions were out of the ordinary, but they lead to an extraordinary conversation. When he says, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying it to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now the woman's next response is also typical. Sir, said the woman, you don't have a bucket and this well is deep. So where are you going to get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and, and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this well will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to come here to draw water. The woman's questions are representative of the questions that we, we have as, before we know Christ. You see, Jesus is giving her a supernatural offer. But she has this earthly perspective. Jesus, when he says, when, when, when she says to him, you don't have the means to get the water out. You don't even have anything to put down in there. From her vantage point, it is the vantage point of what we believe before we know Jesus. Every religion thinks this way. You have to have this in order to get this out of here on a continual basis if you want to survive. You know, it, it's as if we were you could not swim, and you were thrown into the middle of a lake, and you didn't know how to swim, and people on the shore are saying, you move your arms and kick your legs. You think you're going to hear that? You're going to be thinking, I'm dying. What are you doing? Come get me or something, right? But that's what every religion, even to a degree we can in our own Christianity and some of our churches today say, if you do these things, you will be saved. That's what Islam, that's what Hinduism, that's what Buddhism, that's what they all offer. Just do this and you'll be saved. The problem is you communicating that doesn't translate into swimming. You see, Christianity is different because it involves Jesus doing what's necessary to come out on the water and scoop you up out of the water and take you to the shore and breathe life into you. That is different than everything else in this world. But we have to remember, everyone else in the world doesn't have that supernatural perspective that we have once we know Jesus. And so therefore, the only thing that they know is that, unless we are intentional. Sometimes we forget that, that we have a spring of water. That, you know, Jesus talks about a spring of water here. 
Sometimes we, we still treat it like a well. You know, this woman, she has the perspective. She's like, give me that water. I don't want to come back here every day. I don't want people to look at me. I don't want to be hot. I don't want to have to carry water. And yet sometimes we feel like this is the only place on Sunday morning where we can be satisfied and try to make it the rest of the week until it returns. We must realize that we have a spring inside of us. And a spring operates differently than a well. I come from the mountains of North Carolina, and we have springs there. And I have a lot of them sometimes that cause a lot of problems with building. But a spring is it's when water is being forced out of the ground. Excessive rain can also increase that force coming out of the ground. If we supply ourselves daily with the water necessary, then we will not be able to be helped with water being forced out. If you think of it on a spiritual standpoint, the more you have God you put into your life on a daily basis, you won't be able to contain the water that will explode out of that, that will provide what people need. So that's what Jesus is offering her, something supernatural. But we have to be intentional too. The woman's response demonstrates she doesn't fully understand it yet, right? She said, just give me the water. She doesn't understand what Jesus is really talking about first, but Jesus has come to engage her at the point of her gospel by being intentional. The first truth I want us to take this morning is that intentional gospel conversations lead to spiritual transformation. If you are intentional with the gospel, it will be transformative. Now, you may not see the full transformation. It's like cultivation, right? You're cultivating. Now, and cultivating is a big, broad word. We live in a farming state. Cultivation could be uh, planting things in the ground, watering them, harvesting them. It could be moving rocks and pulling weeds before you put something in the ground. So our intentional gospel conversations can lead, will lead to spiritual transformation. You see, Jesus sees something that's in the way, though. He sees a big rock and some weeds in the way, and in verse 16 he goes on, he says, go and call your husband. And she's like, uh-oh, right? He told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you have five husbands. And the man you are now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus engages her on the real issue that's preventing her from taking hold of what Jesus is offering. He says, you can't take hold of this because you're holding on to something else right now. This is the real reason why she's come to the well at noon. She's holding so tightly to the things of this world that it's changing the way she behaves. She doesn't have any choice but to come at noon because she's holding on to things of this world. She hasn't known anything else. Just like your neighbors who don't know Jesus probably don't know anything else. We look at them and say, why do you invest your life in these things? Because that's all I know. Who has told me otherwise? And so Jesus has come to, to, to this woman to be intentional in this engagement to present something radically different than anything else she's ever heard. Her sinful lifestyle is representative of our spiritual reality. Without Jesus, we're just like her. We look at her and we say, oh, she's an adulteress. She's sleeping around with five husbands. That, that's us in the world before we know Jesus. That is 
your lost co-worker. That is, that is the, the parents who go to kids with your school, go to school, that has kids go to school. They, they may still go to school, I don't know. Um, the parents you come in interaction with. The people you live next door to. That's them. But they don't know Jesus. They're going from one thing to the next, trying to be satisfied. And trying to make their way. Now she knows Jesus knows who she is, right? First she's a Samaritan, then she's a woman, and now he knows exactly what her life is. Why is he still talking to her? You see, once you start building your relationship with neighbors, those people in your life, whether it's your coworker, whether it's those parents, whether it's the person who lives next to you, once you start building a relationship with them and you don't make it, it may, you make it about inviting them to come closer to you by having them over to your house to eat or by playing with them in your backyard or by sitting with them at a sporting event. Once they, once they get to know you and, and you know them and they say, why does this person still want to spend time with me if they know who I am? Then we get to the root of what we want to be as Christians, which is to, to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so this woman has a question she's got to be wrestling with in her head now. And so her only response is this. In verse 19, she says, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because the salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is, is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. See, the woman believed that Jesus was a prophet because he could do something spectacular. He had a son. She believed that there was a Messiah coming. But she didn't believe that he could come to her. You see, there's a lot of people out there who, who, who think that something's coming one day. Someone can save them one day. But they're still going about their lives, living them the way they want to, because they haven't had a real encounter with Jesus, because there hasn't been someone that's tried to bridge the gap and say, I want to love you where you're at, and I want to tell you about Jesus. That is intentional. Intentional gospel conversations lead to spiritual transformation. Fortunately, our righteousness is not dependent upon what we do. Thank goodness. I'm reminded of that every day I have my four-year-old, right? Thank you, Jesus, that his righteousness is not dependent upon what he's doing because not good. I pray that you save him one day, right? Um, this woman's hope is Jesus, who has intentionally come to this well to save her. We must be intentional just as Jesus was intentional. 
So intentional gospel conversations lead to spiritual transformation. The story continues as we see the, it says, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed he was talking to a woman, yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Now, I think the disciples at this point were starting to learn, let's not speak so quickly, right? Or maybe Peter wasn't with them because, you know, they said a lot of things, they ended up sticking their foot in their mouth when they spoke too quickly. So they kind of kept quiet on this one. The woman, she leaves her jar, she goes into town and tells the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to them. We have this kind of interlude here where it says, disciples, they've come back. They see that he's talking to a woman. They see that she's a Samaritan. They can see she's there at noon and can assume why she's probably there at noon. It's not that hard to put the pieces together in this current culture. But they decide, let's not have that conversation now because let's just worry about eating because that's what we were sent to do. And so they said, Rabbi, eat something. And he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now think about it. You're the disciples. You got sent into town to buy food. You come out and you brought food. And now he's telling you you don't even need your food, right? Jesus is packing some crackers or or sandwich, and he didn't let anybody know on it, all right? And, and, and so he tells the disciples uh, that he already has food they don't know about. And the, the disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who has sent me and to finish his work. Jesus told them, don't you say that there's still four months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes. Look at the field because they are ready. The harvest, the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper can rejoice. For in, the case, for in this case is true. One sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Jesus' response to the disciples is going to leave them confused. Consider the situation. He just finished telling a Samaritan woman he has water, where she won't have to come back and get water, and now he's telling his disciples, I have food you don't know about. Right? Jesus revealed that he's not talking about food of this world. Jesus pointed out the disciples had missed an opportunity. He had sent them into town to buy food. And they only looked at buying physical food. He had sent them into town because he wanted them to be the ones that brought the people out to Jesus. He wanted them to be doing the will of the Father and to be getting the food that way rather than the physical food that they went into town to buy. You see, they just put their heads down, they went into town, they got their food, and they got out of there. They thought they completed the task. We, too, could go about our day every day and say, I'm living a good life, I'm, I'm going to work, I'm doing the right things, I'm going to church, I'm doing the right things, I'm coming home. And we could be physically sustained, yet spiritually starving. The second truth this morning is, is that our everyday gospel engagements advance the kingdom of God. You see, God has put you where you are for a reason. And not only has he put you where you are for a reason, but he's put those around you for a reason. He not only puts you there, but he puts them there. 
And I was deeply convicted over this before I moved into Springfield. Because I realized I could live my whole life and do some great ministry at my local church and have a mediocre ministry or no ministry with those who live next to me or those who go to school with my ki- whose parents go to have kids in my kids' school or who I maybe work with. I found myself saying I don't want to be in the parable of the Good Samaritan and to pass on the other side of the street like the priest and the Levite so that I could get to church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or some other time to do ministry rather than deal with the situation that God has put right in my life. So we have to ask ourselves, how can we be active in the everyday? How can we take our heads up and look around and, and be cognizant of the opportunities we have every day? And it doesn't mean that we have to make every single conversation of how can we get through all the Romans road or all the, the, uh, the, the full gospel and conversation. A lot of it is about inviting people to come closer so that at some point you'll be able to invite them to go deeper. You see, sometimes in our current age, we've lost the art of hospitality, the idea of bringing people closer. My family does a lot of walks around our neighborhood. Part of that's because I got four kids, and if I don't wear them out before bedtime, it's a nightmare, okay? (laughs) And sometimes we encounter neighbors and we have conversations. I go to a long detail of how we try to utilize that ministry, but sometimes we don't meet anybody. But when I put my four-year-old on my shoulders and I walk him around my neighborhood because he doesn't want to walk anymore, and someone looks out their window and they see a dad carrying their son, when I have a conversation one day about how my, my Heavenly Father, how he loves me, they have their own definition. They're, everybody has a definition of what they think about Father, about what they think about a family. And so when you talk about it without giving them the context for that, with how you live your everyday in front of them, you're left to their definitions in that conversation. And so my family works, has, has tried to work hard to, to paint as much context at our dinner table, in our backyard, on our sidewalks, in our invitation to those close to us. Because we want to, we're not going to replace their definition, but we at least want a second definition in that dictionary. And if you don't make it about your, the second truth, which is everyday gospel engagements advance the kingdom of God, then you're leaving it to their vocabulary. And that's dangerous. Because everybody doesn't have a good father. Everybody doesn't have a great family life. Some people don't even know what a family is. And when you tell them your church is like a family, they're going to put their picture of what they think a family is in that. And some of you, that would terrify you. And unless you bring them close through invitation, that's all they'll have. And that's scary. And so we have to see what Jesus is telling his disciples here. He's saying, look, I sent you there to do more than just buy food. I sent you there to bring them out, but you didn't realize that. Because you think there's a certain, certain pattern that this happens, this happens, this happens. You see, sometimes we're so concerned about having the right humidity, barometric pressure, wind speed, to know that it's right to share the gospel, right? We want to have all the conditions set, or I'm, I'm too old, I'm too young, I don't know this person well enough. This person's in this position. We think of all these different things, and we forget that it's not really us that's working. It's the Spirit through us. And when we are insufficient, He is abundantly sufficient. 
And so when we think, I'm not gifted at hospitality, I'm not gifted at evangelism, you're right, I hope not. I mean, if you are, that's great. You're supposed to equip the church to be better at it. But at the end of the day, most of us aren't. Statistically is, you don't have all the gifts in the Bible. But statistically, you have the same Spirit of God working in you that was in Jesus. And when you believe that and you move forward in obedience, great things happen. And so we have to be about the everyday. And that's what he's telling his disciples. You missed this opportunity. And now this woman, she's gone into town, and guess what? She's telling everybody, I'm here. Following Jesus, we can't wait on the right season. We can't just wait on this season thing, right? Because we are living in the last days. I know we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years, right? Um, But it is the last days. It is. And the last days may be another 100, 200 years. But it is the last days of the people on this earth who, if they don't know Jesus, will spend an eternity in hell. So it is the last days. And so we have to take that seriously. And so, we, we, as we move on here, I want to get to the, to the last part here. Um, you know, Jesus is trying to speak into his disciples. He's trying to tell them that they missed the opportunity. We, we, we go back and we look at what the woman did, right? When she, when she left to go into town, she left her jar. You see, when you have an encounter with Jesus that's transformative, you leave behind what you used to do in order to, to fill yourself up. That's representative of a changed life. The power of a gospel witness that's giving testimony is Hugely important. In verses 39 through 42, we see, now many Samaritans came from the town and believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Now, Jesus didn't sit there and give her her whole life story from all the way up to the point where she did. He just surmised that, hey, look, this is a summary of your life. You are living your life for yourself, and I want you to live your life for me. That's the summary of it, right? That's who we all are. And as remarkable as our story may seem at times, it is remarkable that God has raised someone from the dead to life. So never, never assume that your story is unremarkable, that I grew up in church and I, I made a profession of faith as a young person and I always walked with the Lord. God still raised a dead person to life and saved them from what they couldn't save themselves from. That is unbelievable. And so, many have believed because of what you said, and they, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, we, since we have heard it for ourselves and know that this is really the Savior of the world. The woman's testimony has a direct impact on the people of the village. Because of her testimony, they are led to come to see Jesus. The people know what the woman was before. She tells them about her encounter with Jesus, and they see a life changed. That's a testimony. That's what your testimony encompasses. My life was this before I knew Jesus, 
This is how Jesus changed my life. And now I live this way. And if it was good enough to transform an entire village's life, it's good enough to transform your neighbor's life or your co-worker or the person that you encounter at the park. When you believe it's insignificant, again, we're lessening what God has really done. So believe in the power of your testimony. You know that they did a study at one point, and only 2% of regularly attending members ever share their testimony. 2% of people who attend three out of four weeks out of the year to a church ever share their testimony. Don't let that be us. Don't let that be us. Let us be continually testifying, because that's what it means to be a witness, right? Giving testimony. We have an opportunity. The third truth is, our life's testimony cultivates consistent encounters with God. It takes what may be Difficult for people to grasp and puts it within the context. Your story is like everyone else's story, and yet it's also unique to everyone's story. You were saved just like this woman was because you were going to a well somewhere, drawing out water from something you thought would satisfy you, and you had to go back to every time at thirsty. And Jesus, in saving you, gave you everlasting water that you don't have to thirst anymore. That's like everyone else's need and the opportunity everyone else has. But he did it a little different. But God has put the people in your life and put you in a place because your story intersects their story in some way. And until you invite them to come closer, you're not going to know what that is. It's about cultivation. I mentioned that a minute ago. You know, in our neighborhood, we're trying to tend the soil. For us right now, a lot of in our neighborhood, because there's a lot of lostness, I mean, there's a lot of people there that would say they're, maybe they're Christians or they're living a good life or some of them are other religions. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of rocks and weeds there. And while we, we are trying to plant some seeds, we also know that unless we get the rocky ground broken up, if we don't get the weeds taken out through our everyday encounters of having people at our dinner table, playing with them in our backyard, of talking to them on the sidewalk, then when, we, when something comes up, it's going to be scorched out. Or it's going to be choked out. And so, but what we also know is, is that we're moving towards a hundredfold harvest, the 30, the 60, the 100. See, we're not going to wait to start the process of teaching them to observe all things before they know Jesus. You know, my wife has radically transformed the way that I think about discipleship and the way that I think about ministry like this. When we moved into our neighborhood, we, we had a, the first neighbor we had at our dinner table lives behind us, and she's divorced and has a daughter that's there half the time. And so we said, uh, in the process of the conversation, she came over two or three times to eat, and she told my wife, she said, hey, I think I'd like to, you know, you're a Christian and I'm, I'm Catholic. I think I'd like to know what it means to be a Christian. Would you study the Bible with me? So my wife's like, eh, yeah, we can do that. Yep, yep. So why don't we do it when your daughter's with your ex-husband and, and then we can study every other week. 
She said, no, I think I'd like my daughter to be a part of that. Is it okay with you if your daughter and my daughter and me and you, we meet together and we study the Bible? Oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yep, so every other week for eight or nine months, my wife has been meeting and reading the Gospel of Mark and asking questions and eating together and doing a craft together. And every mother, both mothers study the, the gospel before they meet, come up with a question each. And one day when my wife and, and, Miss, and Cheryl are eating, she says, tell me about the new Asian family that moved in, because you know everybody that moves into this neighborhood, because she's Filipino, and she wanted to know the other family. So my wife's telling them about her and the family, and then they walk by the window. And then my wife says, you know what, let's just go out and meet them. So my wife walks outside and she begins modeling before the neighbor who doesn't know Jesus yet what this idea of welcoming people closer, of getting to know people, so that when she becomes a believer, because I'm trusting the Lord will finish, continue that good work, she'll know nothing but that. We're trying to learn it right now. But for her, it'll be all she knows. You see, what my wife showed me was is that Jesus' disciples, even right here, they don't believe Jesus is who Jesus is. You see, Jesus' disciples, they abandoned him. They ran away from him. They thought he was going to overthrow the Roman government. It wasn't until later on the road to Emmaus or at the Sea of Galilee that they actually believed he was who he was. But we wouldn't read this gospel and say they weren't his disciples. See, so the process of us engaging with people and dealing with the rocks and weeds in people's lives is going to allow for a harvest later. If I approach it and say, I'm not going to teach my neighbor to these things, even though they may not understand how they apply, then when I get to, the, to start to pour fertilizer on the ground, those weeds are going to be grown up. And when I pull them out, they're going to hurt. And so we have thought, thought about a process of how do we live our life so that when Cheryl becomes a believer, hospitality won't be something I have to teach her. Leslie won't have to teach her hospitality because she's only going to know that Christians are hospitable. She's not going to have to teach them that that Christians study the Bible and they pray in this way and they love their neighbors. We're not to teach them that. Like I I had to learn once I became a believer better. Now, obviously, there's more to learn. What I'm saying is she's going to understand that's the way it is from the beginning because that's all she knows. What if we made it a practice of loving our neighbors in such a way and inviting them into our lives that when they become believers, that's all they know? That's all they know. And so, as we think about applications this morning, you know, I want to leave you just with a couple of things. Number one, do you know Jesus? I could be here today and and assume that everyone here knows Jesus. But are you still coming to a well, even if it's coming to church on Sunday morning, even if it's doing good things? Are you defining your goodness by what you've done? Or define it by Jesus who indwells you who is good. You know, my, my, my grandmother was 83 years old when she made a profession of faith. Took me to church for years. But she said I was broken over my sin. I realized I wasn't satisfied. I, was, I didn't have Jesus in my life, as Lord of my life. And she committed to following Jesus. And so, this, just a further example that we have, there's no, no time is right. We are in the last days. 
So if you don't know Jesus, this will be an opportunity for you to to say, I I want to make sure that I understand what it means to have a spring of water living inside of me. Second is, is how are you going to be about the everyday? Some of you, this is challenging. It was challenging for me. If I knew what I knew about ministry 20 years ago that I know in the last year and a half, I'm embarrassed by my life. I'm embarrassed. Because even as somebody who had been in seminary and grown up in the church and had had led people to the Lord, I was not as concerned with my neighbor as I should be. And by neighbor, I mean the people who are in my life regularly. And so some of you this morning may say, I need to make a commitment to trying to keep my head up and start looking around and providing context for those people and looking for conversation. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in obedience. And I think last this morning is just a way, like, how can I share my testimony? How can I share my story of how Jesus took a dead person who could do nothing but sink and further rot, as we know in Ephesians in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our transgressions and sins, right? I used to ask my youth group, as a youth pastor, I said, what can you do if you're dead? And they said, well, nothing. I said, no, you can stink worse, you can rot worse, you can, right? I said, but what God does is he raises a dead person to life. Now, that's crazy. That's crazy. And it's foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And so... Who are you going to tell your story to this week? How are you going to push that 2% statistic up in local churches? Because you you cultivate a consistent opportunity to hear about Jesus. And so we're going to transition to a a song, and and I just want, I'll be down front if there's, if you need to talk or anything, but please, I, I really ask you to consider. Our country needs nothing more now than to have relevant witnesses. A new president's not going to turn this around. A new government's not going to fix it. There's no bailouts. There's just the gospel. And if God can take 12 untrained fishermen who say we're going to obey Jesus, and he can turn the world upside down, there's more than 12 here. He can do great things in this community, in this state, in this country, in the world. I say that because I believe in Jesus. I believe in you as a believer. And so just respond as God calls you. Jesus, draw me ever nearer as I labor through the storm. You have called me to this passage, and I'll follow, though I'm journey bring a blessing may I rise on wings of faith and at the end of my 
with your likeness let me Jesus, guide me through the tempest. Keep my spirit stayed and sure. When the midnight meets the morning, let me love you even this journey bring a blessing may I rise on wings of faith and at the end of my heart's testing with your likeness let me Thank you for joining us this morning as we come and we get a chance to worship God together. Uh, thank you for sharing that, that word that was on your heart. We, I hope that you take this week as an opportunity to share your testimony, share God's love and how he's spoken to your life. Uh, the uh, verses this week and the scripture for you to study before we come back together is 1 Kings 5-6, through 6, Jeremiah 27-28, through 28, Luke 15-16, through 16, and 1 Thessalonians uh, chapters 1 and 2. And I'm sure Pastor Cliff has is really diving deep into these things, so make sure you are prepared for him to ask you any random question as he's uh, being forced to relax a little bit. And I'm sure that he's taking the opportunity to study God's Word and to dive deeper into it because that's who our pastor is. So thank you, and we hope you have a blessed week.